Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. There is often an assumption that as women enter the paid workforce, gender equality will improve. This assumption has underpinned the World Bank's idea of women's employment as smart economics, which has become a dominant global mantra. But as we'll hear... These issues are far more complex. Today, we'll be talking primarily in the Australian context, but these are global issues that we're addressing. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region, and for those who want to hear more about the research that can help us to address policy challenges. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And today I'm flying solo as my pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter, is taking some time off. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net here at the Crawford School, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And listeners, don't forget to check out our degree programs and short courses to look at what we've got on offer here at Crawford. So today we're taking a deep dive into some of the complexities of gender inequality in the workplace and beyond, and some very disturbing links with domestic violence. According to Australia's Workplace Gender Equality Agency, the full-time gender pay gap is 13.4%. This means that on average, Australian women earn about $240 per week less than Australian men. While this figure has come down since a peak of 18.5% in November 2014, overall progress towards changing the gender pay gap in Australia is slow. The most recent report of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency and Bankwest Curtin Economic Centre, which was recently published, found that the largest pay gap remains in senior management. And while the gap at that level is narrowing at a faster rate than in other sectors, we won't see pay equity for at least another 20 years. And we're looking at even longer timeframes for clerical workers, for machine operators and for labourers. And for community and personal service workers, there is no indication of the pay gap closing at all. So if we consider pay alone, women's employment is not creating gender equality, but rather gender inequality is being replicated in the workplace and it is entrenched. 
Research undertaken by Professor Ray Cooper and her colleagues also found that women have fewer opportunities to voice their opinions within their places of employment. So the problems, not surprisingly, are broader than pay alone. But the problems are broader still. In World First Research, the Crawford School's Professor Bob Brunig and Dr Jacqueline Zhang have found that domestic violence against female partners in heterosexual couples occurs significantly more frequently when women earn more than men. As the authors of that piece wrote recently, the sobering implication is that we cannot assume that domestic violence will simply disappear as women's labour market prospects improve. So we have some serious social and policy challenges on our hand. And today on the pod, we want to ask, what can policymakers do to deliver on the promise that paid employment will lead to greater gender equality? And I am absolutely delighted to be joined by both Ray Cooper and Robert Brunig to talk through some of these issues. Let me just do some introductions. Professor Robert Brunig is one of Australia's leading public policy economists and the lead author of the recent study on gender norms, wage levels and domestic abuse. Bob is Director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute here at the Crawford School. He's also a former school director. And Bob has made a very significant impact through his research projects on a range of issues, including the relationship between childcare and women's labour supply and the effect of immigration on Australia's labour market prospects. Bob works um, very regularly with a range of government agencies. Bob, it's great to have you here today. Hi. Thanks for having me on. And we also have Professor Ray Cooper. Ray is Professor of Gender, Work and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney. She is co-director of the Women, Work and Leadership Research Group, um, and she is one of the editors of the Journal of Industrial Relations. Ray's research spans a range of topics across the world of work and especially how they intersect with workforce diversity issues. One of her current projects, which we'll talk a little about today, is Australian Women's Working Futures. In 2019, Ray was appointed as an officer of the Order Australia for her service to higher education and workplace policy and practice. Ray, it's great to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So, Bob, perhaps we could begin with you and perhaps we could begin with money. The gender pay gap remains a problem in Australia and elsewhere. As an economist, can you help us to begin to understand why progress on closing the gender pay gap over the last two decades or so so has been so incredibly slow and why it continues to move at the pace of a lethargic snail? (laughs) That's a good question, Sharon. I I guess when I think about the gender pay gap, um, I think about – what we call the kind of raw gap, which is the gap that we see in the data and the numbers that you've cited. And then I think about how much of that we can explain through observable characteristics. And so I think about half of that gap um, can be explained through observable characteristics. There's an emerging set of research in economics that I think is incredibly interesting um, that suggests that there's very little of that gap that actually has to do with discrimination. So we've actually been very effective at getting rid of discrimination. Uh, A lot of that remaining gap has to do with the choices that men and women make and and the different choices. So that partly has to do with the kind of occupation that people go into, but it partly also has to do with decisions about 
who ends up taking care of children at home. Um, and what we see is there's not much of a pay gap between childless men and women, for example. Most of the pay gap emerges because women are the ones who end up staying home with children. Why is the pay gap, uh, I think, so hard to change is because that gender norm of women are the ones who are going to make the sacrifices. Women are the ones who are going to stay at home. Women are the ones who are going to choose the lower paying job that perhaps has more flexibility for taking care of children. Um, and men are going to specialize in making money. Um, so, you know, in as much as that, in as much as those decisions reflect what people really want, then I think it's fine. In as much as those decisions reflect societal expectations that constrain people and are not giving people full equality of opportunity, then they're problematic. Uh, and they are going to be resistant to change from policymakers because they have to do with culture and they have to do with norms. And those are things that are very resistant to policy change. There's a lot in there to, to unpack around um, kind of culture, choice, discrimination and, and how we think about those things. Ray, can I invite you to come in here um, and reflect on the, the the existence of that gender pay gap and, and why it is proving so difficult to shift? Yeah, look, I, I really agree with Bob. It's a fairly intractable problem. Um, and I think uh, particularly if we look at where women have gotten to in terms of education, um, educational attainment for women is number one in the world, is the highest it's ever been in Australia and much higher than men's actually in Australia. So I would actually say that it's reasonably scandalous that we have a gender pay gap of 13.5%. Um, but I think there are some broader kind of structural issues at play here that aren't really just about um, characterising them as individual choice-based. Um, so I think that one of the key things that really drives a gender pay gap and something that's really not moving is the significant undervaluation of highly feminised work um, relative to, to male-dominated work. And we have a very uh, gender-segregated labour force. Um, so that really means that even though we don't like to speak in these terms and it sounds a little bit sexist, um, men's work and women's work actually are something that exists in, a, in the Australian labour market and quite acutely so in Australia compared to many others. Um, and many of the very male-dominated sectors are quite lucrative. Uh, they have better career paths. They have a range of other um, sort of features that are, um, you know, better rewarded uh, than our highly feminised sectors, um, such as, you know, in education, in care uh, and in health, uh, those areas that were exposed so greatly as being so important for us socially and economically over the last year in, in relation to COVID. So I think that's a structural um, challenge that faces um, the majority of women, the majority of whom work in highly feminised sectors. I also think we have some structures that we need to sort of unpack and investigate around what constitutes choice for people. And I'd really say that some of those gender norms that are in operation around who chooses to care, um, who has the choice to care and how that's gendered is really important to take into account. So I don't necessarily think that it's a case of women, uh, you know, freely choosing 
always to be the person who does the, the dominant amount of care in families. Um, I think it's more of a case that men really don't have as much opportunity to do that because they don't have as, as great access to flexible working, but also because of the norms we have about motherhood um, and about working that means that, uh, you know, in some ways it's seen as appropriate um, and ideal for women to be um, caring for children um, and to be sacrificing career progression um, and labour market participation and attainment. So there's a lot going on, but I would actually say some of those structural features around the industries that people work in, the occupations they're working in, really is a real um, challenge um, for um, women's um, economic security broadly, but also about the gender pay gap, and that is not moving. So that's why I think these estimates about, you know, it will take 20 years or 200 years or whatever the, the various uh, figures are, I think it is going to take a very, very long time, primarily because we still have undervalued feminised work, and that is the key feature that drives the gap. I was really struck when I read the most recent um, Workplace Gender Good Quality Agency report, and it pointed out that it is in those sectors that are most feminised, that we see the gap not moving. So yes. I think that's a real worry, a real red flag in terms of how we might start to address this. And in fact, that some of the highest gaps are actually in some of those sectors. So if we look at areas like health, um, that's where we see some of the, the really, really high gaps um, between uh, men's and women's wages. We'll come back to some of these issues around gender norms and how that's shaping all of these things that we're, we're talking about. But Ray, I wanted to stay with you just for a moment and to ask you about something that we often hear less about, and that's voice at work. As I mentioned in the introduction, your research has included the gendered nature of workers' voice. Can you explain to us what we mean when we talk about workers' voice and what your research has found about gender? Yeah, thanks. Um, well, worker voice, put simply, is really about uh, workers' capacity to have a say at work. Put, put very simply, um, and, and their perception of the extent to which they can influence decisions that are made at work. So our recent study, which we published um, in the British Journal of Management um, just in the last couple of weeks, suggests that actually there's not necessarily a gap between men's perceptions of their voice and women's perceptions of their voice, but there is a really big gap um, relating to the structures of the labour market. Uh, those workers, both men and women, who work in highly feminised sectors report that they have lower levels of voice and influence than do workers who work in more male-dominated or mixed sectors. So uh, f for us, um, that's kind of interesting um, because it really means that uh, these things that are driving uh, the gender pay gap, for example, um, we can also see that in operation in terms of the, the, the sort of voice gap in particular sectors and particular occupations. Um, we, that's not to say that workers who work in highly male-dominated sectors, um, you know, have a fabulous experience of accessing um, and exercising voice. Um, it is uh, because in our um, qualitative work, we can see that um, women who work in very male-dominated sectors talk to us about the ways in which uh, their voices are muted, if you like, if we want to carry that analogy on, um, and the ways in which there's a gendered way in which they're able to speak up at work. Um, and, and that's yet another challenge that women face in very uh, male-dominated sectors. So essentially what it is is lower voice exists in highly feminised sectors. It's yet another marker of lower quality employment in those sectors. I think this is so fascinating because it's not just about men and women, although it is partly, but it's also about gendered patterns within our society and the the way in which gender structures societies. And we see that playing out 
know, across the workplace, but also more broadly. And Bob, I think this brings us to your recent research quite powerfully. Um, and as I mentioned, you and Jacqueline Zhang have just published um, some work on intimate partner violence and partners' earnings. Can you tell us a little bit about that research and what it was that you found? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, the Let me maybe, before I jump into the violence part of it, let me give two bits of background information. Um, so background information number one is that um, we – in the U.S., uh, in, in Sweden, in Australia, in a whole bunch of countries, we see um, what looks like an aversion in couples to have women earn more than their male partners. Uh, men earn more than women on average when we look at, at both married and cohabitating partners, and that's consistent with the gender wage gap. But what's weird is if you if you draw a graph of the distribution of – women's earnings, for example. So I, I draw a graph where I say, okay, I'm going to look at how, what percentage of women earn zero of the household income, what percentage of women earn 100. Um, and I see that, of course, there are, that there are more people on the left-hand side of the graph. There's more cases where women are earning less than half of household income. When you get to 50%, there's a very sharp drop-off. So another way of saying that is there's many more households where the guy earns 51%. And there are very, very few households where the woman earns 51%. And you only get that drop-off at 50%. Uh, and, you, and you get that drop-off in survey data. You get it in administrative tax data. So it really appears that couples are arranging their financial situation in a way so that guys end up earning more than half of household income. And this is consistent with a strong male breadwinning gender norm. So that's, I guess, observation number one. Um, observation number two is there's a, a bit of a literature that's been emerging around this that says that when women earn more than their male partners, that uh, people, both the male and the female, express lower satisfaction with the relationship. The relationship is more likely to end in divorce or for non-married couples less likely to end in marriage. And women appear to do more housework uh, in these relationships than than women in households of similar kind of levels of income and education, almost as if they're making up for the fact that they make more than their male partner, right? Which kind of makes no sense at all. You would think that, you know, if, if two people are married together and one of them is better at earning market income, maybe the other one would specialize more in doing uh, uh, household uh, chores. Then, then we are, I guess we're the first paper to take that and really look at what happens at that drop-off point of 50% to domestic violence. And there's two kind of theories, I guess. I mean, there's a bunch of different theories, but it's sort of two main streams of theory. One is saying that as women earn more money in the marketplace, their bargaining position in the household is going to improve because if they're not treated well, they can leave because now they have economic power to leave. They're no longer subject to needing their husband's income. So a kind of bargaining explanation where we think if women make more money, they should do better at home, i.e. less domestic violence. Another explanation is uh, what the sociologists would call a male backlash explanation. So when men uh, start to make more – when women make more money than men, men reassert their dominance uh, in the household in a variety of ways and one way could be through domestic violence. So with that as background, 
um, what we find is that if you graph the probability of domestic violence against the share of how much money women make, it's essentially flat until you hit this 50% cutoff and then there's a big jump of about 35%. So to put that in context, in our data, we're looking at three sets of ABS data from 2006 until 2016. We're looking at 40,000 observations. It's quite a large number of, of observations. About 4.5% of women in the sample report having experienced violence from their current partner. When you go over this 50% cutoff, that jumps up to 6.1%. So it's a substantial increase, obviously from a low base. And we find this consistent across three years of our data. We find it consistent for people who are born in Australia and people who are not born in Australia. We find this for high-educated couples and low-educated couples. We find it for high-income households and low-income households. It seems to be very, very difficult to to kind of destroy this result. Um, and I and yeah, Bob, does age make a difference? The age of the couples. So we also find that age doesn't make a difference. Yeah. So in the U.S., there is a paper that suggests that as women earn more income, uh, that the probability of violence against them goes down, which would suggest a kind of bargaining explanation in the U.S. We're finding something very different in Australia, which I think is consistent with the kind of things that Ray was talking about, right? That we are a highly gendered society. I, I can't help but pick up on this combat of race because you know, if you go into a primary school in France, the teachers are 50% male and 50% female. If you go into a primary school in, in Australia, you struggle to find a male. Go into a childcare center. There are no men. <laughs> or if there are, they're directing the center, right? <laughs> um, and so this is a huge – this occupation segregation is, is, is both a huge driver of the gender wage gap but also a reflection, I think, of the fact that gender norms in our society are incredibly strong. I think it would be good for us to, to unpack some of this a bit more. First, Bob, I'm going to ask a question that some of our listeners might be wondering. Might your findings be explained – by women who earn more, feeling more empowered, to use a word that I'm not terribly keen on, but I will use it here, and being more prepared to report. In order for that to be true, that effect would have to be only happening discreetly at this point where you get to 50%. So as women make more money, we're, they're not more likely to report, but suddenly when they jump over 50%, they're more likely to report. Um, and that, seem, that would have to be true irrespective of education, irrespective of age. That seems like a far-fetched reporting effect. It, it, I can't completely rule out a reporting effect of this type, but it, it seems far-fetched to me. Also, what is true is that higher-income women, there's research suggesting that they're actually less likely to report domestic violence because you know, if you're a partner in a law firm, you, there's a lot of stigma attached to saying – I've experienced violence at home. This is a lower class thing to experience violence at home. But in fact, you know, if you talk to anybody who works in a women's shelter or if you actually look at the data, it's not simply a lower class phenomenon. When I read the findings of your work, Bob, and, and Jacqueline's, um, I found it so disturbing, but not particularly surprising given the nature of gender norms in Australia um, and indeed in some other parts of the world. Ray, what do you make of these findings? 
Well, I think my reaction is that it's super fascinating and it's equally depressing, isn't it? Yeah, I, I can't help but go back, I think, as Bob's already done, of thinking about what this means around um, gender norms, you know, ideal workers, ideal carers, you know, ideal family members and what we expect um, women's role and men's role are in both the labour market and in the family. Um, and I think that they really intimately uh, connected. I think we often study one in the absence of the other, um, but I think this is yet another argument for why we need to properly have a look at those interconnections of different parts of people's lives from paid work to unpaid work um, and the sort of interaction of those things and the relationships uh, that and the impacts that they have. So I think it's, um, I don't know, I, I I, I'm quite flabbergasted and, and quite um, quite disturbed by the the results. To be honest, I mean, one positive: if you get uh, this, is a, a terrible thing to say, but the gender gap is not really changing. So, um, I think it would take um, many many thousands of years for women in Australia to to meet up with men in terms of earnings. Um, I say that very facetiously. Yeah. So, but I think this is really going to the issue of gender norms and what we think is appropriate for men and women to be doing um, and perhaps down at the micro level of the family this plays out in very disturbing ways. I think this is such phenomenally important research and, and I think at this moment we might take a break so we can all just reflect on this for a moment and what it means and we will come back to talk a little further about how we respond to some of these issues. So listeners don't go away. Even on a budget. Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Robert Brunig and Ray Cooper talking through some really challenging issues around gender norms and what that means in the workplace, in the family and across society. Bob, I mentioned in the introduction that the World Bank has claimed that paid work will lead to women's economic empowerment. And I think that that idea of smart economics has often been critiqued by, by feminists. Um, the World Health Organization also lists a number of factors associated with intimate partner violence and sexual violence against women. And among them is low levels of women's access to paid employment. So the WHO is su suggesting that paid employment is actually a protective factor. Now, I think there has been this assumption that paid work is a path towards gender equality and to addressing violence against women. And I think that's why your research is so important because it's, um, well, it is challenging <laughs> that we should accept that assumption in every context. So this is the $64 million question. Based on the research that you've been doing, how do we start rethinking 
these issues of paid work and gender equality and challenge gender norms. You'd started to talk about gender segregation, you know, the the overwhelming number of women as primary school teachers in childcare in Australia. But uh, can you talk us through this a little bit more in terms of your thinking about where we need to go? So I guess, I, you know, I should say that I've told you about my research, which is quantitative and based on data, and I'm very certain about my research. Once, once you take me out into the world of what should we do next, I feel like I'm skating on on relatively thin ice. Uh, I guess I guess a couple things to me are obvious. One is that um, I, I do think women's economic empowerment is a good thing. We do see overall levels of violence against women going down as women do better financially. So, and we are talking about, uh, you know, four and a half percent is, uh, is, is still an unacceptably high level of violence against women, but it's low relative to a lot of countries, right? So we have made progress on that. I think it's important not to sort of ignore the progress that's been made. Um, the second thing I guess I would say to me that's relatively obvious is, you know, we need to make sure that women who are in abusive relationships know that they can leave those relationships and they have support. So support for that is obviously crucially important from a policy point of view. And then if you start to think about other things governments can do, it may be that the gender norms in the in the home evolve more slowly than gender norms in the workplace. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that if you look at time use data. Um, but government policy shouldn't be biased in a way that is forcing women to stay home. So, for example, when we think about paid paternity leave, we should be very careful to make sure that we have equal leave provisions for men and women and that we incentivize men to take that leave. Men need to learn how to be with their children and care for their children. And I think there's some evidence from Sweden that when you do that, fathers actually enjoy learning to be with their children and that they actually then become more involved with the kids as the kids get older. So I think that's a really important aspect of policy. Maybe I'll leave it at that and let Ray jump in with some other things. Ray, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on this and and also about a quite remarkable study that you're doing with a number of colleagues, including Crawford School's Ariadne Roman, um, on Australian women's working futures. Um, and it would be great to hear what that research is starting to tell us about the way we need to think about gender and the future of work and where these ideas of um, gender stereotypes fit in. Mm. I might just start with uh, following on from um, from Bob's comments there. Um, there is a lot of evidence actually that the more we allow um, and enable men to be able to play a more active role in families, um, the, the better the situation is uh, for everyone in the family. Um, so there was an interesting study out of Manchester which suggested that the more time that men can spend with children when they're under, you know, sort of in those infant years, under one, um, the more, if they spend more time at that period, they're much more likely across the kid's life to be able to um, spend a more active period of um, parenting, um, which has knock-on effects for for uh, mothers in, in families as well. So I agree. I think in order to sort of go ahead and try to break down some of these gender norms, uh, we need to not only be looking at um, women as the target, if you like, but also looking at what we are allowing um, and enabling men to do. Because we know from all of the evidence um, in Australia and abroad that men are much less likely to ask uh, to access flexible working, for example, 
um, and they're much more likely to be refused if they do and to be punished if they do it than, than are women. So we need to do something about that, sort of the opposite side of the coin to to um, the women's situation where we're assuming that women are the appropriate people to look after um, you know, children and others in the home, and frankly, that's unpaid work. Um, so men are better at paid work and women are better at, better at unpaid work, which doesn't quite uh, fly with me. Um, in terms of our Australian Women's Working Futures uh, project, it is a really exciting project that um, we're working on with a, a group of University of Sydney colleagues and also our very good friend Ariadne Vroman, who's at Crawford School now. We miss her very much at the University of Sydney. Um, and really what we're motivated to do there is to look at both the present of work, if you like, so the current experience and, and the material experiences of uh, pay, of uh, flexible working or not, of progression within careers, uh, with training and things like that, um, and also to have a look at uh, workers' uh, gendered perceptions of how work is for them um, and how it's going to project into the future and what their hopes, fears and dreams are, if you like, for their future of work. Um, and we, we've um, undertaken that study. It's a national um, survey. It's also a, a, a wall of qualitative work in different occupational um, settings. And we're trying to get at this sort of highly feminised, highly male-dominated um, sectors and the differences there. Uh, and we find some really remarkably different experiences and perceptions of women and men. I should have mentioned it's also young women and men, so under the age of 40, um, so comparing their experiences and their aspirations. Um, and we find, for example, that if we talk to women, if we're thinking about the future of work, we talk to them about what they want from a future, you know, flourishing career. What would they, what are the features of, of jobs and careers that they would like? And I think this comes back in many ways to sort of the gendered nature of, of work and the experience of young women. So these are women from 16, uh, you know, through the 30s. Uh, and the two key things that they say they want from employment is, number one, they want respect at work. And when we dig into that um, in terms of what that means in our qualitative work, um, women see that in a very gendered sense. So they respect for them is, is about sort of the, the hygiene factors around work. It's about decent pay. It's about, you know, having um, the capacity to work the hours they need um, and having an income they can rely on. But it's also about the ways in which they can exercise their voice, the ways in which they're heard, the ways in which they're valued as professionals, the ways in which um, there are interactions at work that are not um, sort of downplaying their contribution as people just because they're women. Um, I think we're seeing this playing out in, um, in the national conversation just at the moment. Um, so that's a, that's a really strong feature. And another feature, which we often don't talk about with women, um, is security of employment. So we're much more likely, I think, to have a conversation about what women want from work as it being about flexibility. And that is in the top five of things that women want. But they're actually telling us that what they want is security of hours. They want um, hours and wages that they can depend on to do all of the things they need to do in life, whether that's, you know, pay, pay the bills and the mortgage, and um, but also to schedule their care. Um, so I think those combination of things, is it, it, those two things are a little different to what men say that they want. They're, men are much more likely to talk about pay. Um, and issues like that. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really strong feature that comes out. Um, we also did a lot of work of digging into issues around um, gender-based harassment and sexual harassment at work, uh, and that's another really pervasive issue. Um, you know, the issue of violence in its many forms that women face at work is still a very pervasive, very sticky problem in the workplace, and we're still having a national conversation about that. 
Um, so I think there's still a lot of work to do to make workplaces be welcoming, accommodating, and actually, frankly, safe for women to be working in because, the, you know, it is a, it's a really, um, really significant problem and women are very aware of it. Our study was done before this most recent couple of months of conversation about um, gender equality and respect at work, um, but it was a live conversation before it's on the front page of the newspaper as it is now. Yeah, I guess for so many women, it was their lived experience before it became a topic of public discussion. Of course, yeah. And I think that, you know, the National, uh, the Respect at Work report that Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, put out over a year ago uh, really showed just how um, strong an experience is of, of um, women at work and many men. Um, but in our focus groups, we can tell you that when you talk to women about um, gender-based disrespect at work, women either can talk about having experienced um, sexual harassment and disrespect themselves, having been a bystander and seen that happening in their workplaces, or having friends and family who've experienced it. So it's not an academic experience, if you like, for many Australian women. Australian women can absolutely relate to any of the conversations that we're having around these issues because it's their, it's their life and it's their work. Ray, what kinds of things should we expect to see from employers and workplaces to start to make workplaces safer for young women and for women regardless of age? Great question. Um, look, I think if we have actually a look at um, the Respect at Work report, if I can go back to that one, that was a really impressive report in many ways because it's backed by you know some significant research. Um, and it makes a number of recommendations about how we can make change that will make workplaces much safer. And the key issue that I think is really critical that we need to grapple with, and that is um, rather than seeing... Um, gender-based disrespect, violence against women at work or sexual harassment, um, however that plays out, as being an individual experience, that we see that actually as a structural problem of gender inequality at work. And so if we have a structural problem and we have such a broad-based problem, then we need to deal that deal with that in a structural way. Um, we, we almost need to see it as a feature of workplaces. So I really liked the recommendation that that report made, which was to try to see um, employers having what we call a positive duty. Uh, so a positive duty to ensure that workers who work for them, their employees, their staff, um, that they um, have an experience which is free from harassment uh, rather than making it on an individual complaints-based process. So we know because of the power dynamics and the gendered norms at work um, that it's really difficult often if a person is actually facing discrimination and harassment for them to be able to name the problem because often they're in an inferior power situation. Often it's um, horribly mortifying um, and shame-filled experience. Often it's something that is um, terrifying for people. So it's about shifting the emphasis away from an individual making a complaint, which we know many people don't because it's such a, an onerous process and often doesn't have an outcome that benefits the individual, um, and, and shifting that again to say, actually, this is a responsibility of us all in our workplaces and employers really do need to be making sure um, that in the same way that they do with work, work health and safety, to make sure that they have an environment which is free from harm for their workers, including in relation to sexual harassment. Sadly, that's one aspect that doesn't seem to have been responded to so far by government um, in terms of their response to the Respect at Work report. If nothing else, the last couple of months has put those issues very firmly on the public agenda. So maybe we have a window where we will start to see some change. Um, but Bob, I, I wanted to come back to you and pick up on um, a point that 
Ray made about you know women um, being able to or need to be able to um, arrange their their care work, mm. and also the point that you made about childcare. A lot of your work has been focusing on childcare. How can we use support for childcare and childcare policy to start to address some of these issues? To start to shift some of the gender norms? Do we look to the Swedish models, um, or sorry, to the Nordic models of um, uh, parental leave and and more support for men? You know, are there other things that we can do through childcare? So I think one of the big problems that we have with the current childcare system is we end up with very punitive marginal tax rates for a lot of women uh, because they are the second earners, because they are the person who's going to take care of the kids if they're not working. Um, and I think it, it's – I guess it's a feature of two elements of our system which are probably good things. Um, one of them is that we have a very targeted – uh, tax and transfer system, which uh, we often tout uh, because it means that we're giving lots of money to people at the bottom and we're not splashing money around to people who don't need it. But what it does mean is that when we withdraw money from people uh, that they face, you know, how you, in order to keep a targeted system, you have to take money away from people as they start to make more money. And in, in childcare in particular, that doesn't seem to be working very well. The second problem uh, is that while we tax people on an individual basis, we actually withdraw payments on a household basis. Um, and that ends up falling very heavily on women as has been well documented. Um, I, I'm not sure I have a magic bullet solution to that. Like I really think that's something where you're just confronting a kind of difficult trade-off, right? The, you know, the countries that do seem to do well on this usually have a combination of generous parental leave policies, generous income payments for families with children, and generous support for childcare. Uh, so it's like kind of the combination of those three things. And I, I think Australia can probably do a bit better in all of those. Um, the other thing I'll just throw in, uh, because I, whenever we talk about childcare, I feel like I need to mention this, is that um, you know we often talk about kind of the high marginal tax rates on high uh, income earning women, but we don't give them a childcare support to poor families that aren't working. So we we very much view it as a kind of work stimulus program rather than as an education program for young children. And I would think if we had some extra money to spend on childcare, that you might want to target it at those people who are currently not getting any childcare and who we think really could benefit from it. I think that's one of those issues that you've thrown in just as we're coming to the end of this podcast that we really need to spend more time on. And so uh, listeners, we're going to come back to that issue um, in a future episode of the pod because we are we're rapidly running out of time now. Um, but that's an issue that's worthy of much more discussion. Um, Bob, as we as we do wrap up, you've said that the study that you've just completed that we've we've talked about um, is just one of the missing puzzle pieces to help us understand um, issues around the gender pay gap. What else do we need to do in terms of research to help inform our responses? We don't know to what degree the patterns we observe reflect choices that people really want or do they reflect choices that people don't actually have and they're forced to be – they're forced to make and they're forced to be pushed into certain things. I think this is one of the things that makes gender equality such a difficult topic to kind of talk about. So. I could imagine a world in which we have complete equal opportunity for men and women, but men and women still might on average choose different things. Um, and I think that's something that we need to get a much better handle on. And clearly, I'm not suggesting we're in a world where men and women are completely free to choose different things. But 
Uh, but I do think that that means that we need to think hard about these questions about occupational segregation, about educational choices that people make, um, and then about how care of children is divided up. And Ray, as we wrap up this conversation, again flagging that we're going to have to come back to some of these issues, what's the key piece of advice that you would give to policymakers around first steps to addressing these really intertwined, complex problems we've been discussing? Mm. What a big and interesting question. Um, that's what we, our research team calls the magic wand question that we ask at the end of all the focus groups and interviews that we do. If we love a magic power, wand. What would you do? <laughs> um, so I, I guess I'd probably put it under the broad theme of listening to and valuing women. Um, and that could fall out in a number of different ways. But listening to and understanding that gendered difference uh, of what goes on in the, in the labour force understanding what women are asking for um, and are seeking um, in their careers. They clearly are are investing in themselves. Educational institutions are investing in women. Families are investing in women. Um, We need to understand why aren't they getting that payback back from the labour market and from employers and how we can try to shift that dial a little bit to get uh, you know a better return for them. That can fall into a whole number of areas about how can policymakers make a contribution uh, to that. But also, um, as I'm primarily an organisational scholar, um, what's the role that organisations play in being able to crack some of these really strong gender norms that we have? How can we try to break some of these um, glass walls, which is how we characterise it? You know, we talk a lot about the glass ceiling, but how do we break those glass walls of occupational and industry um, segregation? And what can organisations do to be able to um, make that a, a, you know, a reality for, for, for men and women to be working in not quite so um, segregated experiences in the labour market. So I think there's a lot of research to do, a lot of work to do, um, but there's certainly a lot of opportunity because we have um, such significant differences and inequalities in the labour market um, and in the care regimes that, that sit around it. Robert Brunig and Ray Cooper, this has been such an informative and thought-provoking conversation. Thank you both so much for sharing your research findings, your insights and your wisdom with us today. And as I have repeatedly said, we will come back to some of these issues on a a future podcast. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we remind you to reach out to us, to let us know um, what your thoughts are on these issues that we've been talking about. You can reach us on Twitter. That's at APPS Policy Forum, at APPS Policy Forum, or via email on podcast at policyforum.net. Probably the best way to get in touch with us is to join our Facebook group and to type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us there. Do remember to leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. And also subscribe to us. You can subscribe through any of your favourite platforms, Acast, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. Also, thanks as always to our fantastic research and production team here, the Policy Forum team at the Crawford School and Jack Fox and the ANU Studio. And Bob and Ray, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Sharon. And listeners, we will be back next week with another episode. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, that's bye-bye for now. Bye.